0: 30 scriptures, 30 days, today, day 15. Are you ready? I I can't tell you that I'm ready. I'm a little nervous. In fact, I'm getting more nervous each time I get ready to go live to do one of these. But hey, 30 day, 30 scriptures and 30 days. Today is day 15. That means scripture number 15. And we, well, we really start right now. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Theology Central podcast for this Monday, June the twenty seventh, twenty twenty two. It is currently eleven forty eight a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where I I I'm not ready. I'm someone in the chat said they're ready, but I I'm not really ready for this. I I'm worried about this. I I I had to peek. I had I. And here's here's kind of where we are in this. If you're if you're just tuning in, you don't know what we're doing. Thirty scriptures in thirty days. This is a kind of a mini series that we're working on. I don't know. It's thirty messages, a mini series. I, I guess compared to other things, I don't know. But the series that we're doing, thirty scriptures in thirty days. I, I'm getting more and more nervous because at the beginning, we we were given some scriptures from the book by Charles Stanley, 30 Life Principles, and we were able to take some principles from them. We were able to like, okay, okay, I don't know if this scripture supports the principle Charles Stanley is suggesting, but it definitely gives us some principles that we can apply, that we can work with, that we can think about, that we can meditate on. But I think we're now getting, as we move further and further into the book, the scriptures, in in my view, are just becoming more and more problematic. You're like, wait, why did you choose that verse? And what in the world am I supposed to do with that? And that is a bad sign, right? Considering that we're on day 15, we're on day 15 scripture number 15, and we've got to get all the way to scripture in day 30. If if it's already becoming more and more just like, wait, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? That's not going to make for a great rest, uh, a, a great podcast series, right? Because then most of the episodes are going to be, be me sitting here behind a microphone going, uh, uh, well, uh, well, I, um, mm, I, mm. I don't know what to do with that. That's not the most exciting. I am I'm I'm trying there's there's a lot of things we're trying to do with this series. On one, obviously I'm doing it in a certain way so that as you hear me struggling trying to figure it out, hopefully you're sitting there going, no, 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 it's this. No, the principle is that no, 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 that 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 scripture doesn't prove anything that they're claiming. It's trying to get you to kind of step up and start yelling at your your mobile device, your phone or whatever you're listening to me on and saying, no, I think it's this. That's great. If I accomplish that, no matter how foolish I may look, no matter no matter if it looks like I know what I'm doing or not know what I'm doing, that's irrelevant. You got engaged, you got involved. So then I accomplished something. But after a period of time, if we just keep going with, I I don't know what to do. And then ultimately you're sitting there going, I don't know what to do, then we're going to spend 35, 40 minutes, 45 minutes going, we don't know what to do, and that's not beneficial to anyone. So I, I'm trying to get you involved. So on that, I think I've been somewhat successful in that, hopefully. And then, as someone pointed out, that in certain ways, this kind of does serve as a hermeneutical exercise, because we're looking at a scripture, and then on the spot, we're about like, what do we do with this? That to me is fun, but it can be nerve wracking when you're live on the air. It really can. Cause I'm looking at it going, what do I, okay, what do I do here? What do I do here? And I've got, you know, I, I feel like I'm on a tightrope, and there's no, there's no net net below. And I'm like, I'm going to end up looking stupid. But if me looking stupid, once again, helps you with the Herman like engage in an actual hermeneutical exercise. Well then once again, I, a, I guess, I guess that's what I'm most fearful of That, to, to me to for me to really accomplish anything in this series, I guess the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate result is going to be that I look like, I don't know what I'm doing, I look clueless, and I look stupid. And the fact that I'm more worried about that than your benefit demonstrates my own depravity because I'm more worried about my own ego, pride, and what people may think than I am about, well, who cares how stupid I look if they benefit from it. Yeah. So, so maybe the lesson in this is once again, that I am confronted with the reality of my own depravity. Maybe that is the goal of this because it, because I shouldn't be worried about that. Right. I shouldn't be worried about that, but, but I do get worried about that. Um, and, and, and maybe that that's, this is when you, when you for, when you force yourself to be in a situation where there's a great possibility, there's, there's a great probability that you're going to stumble and struggle and go, well, what about this? What about that? That you're going to end up looking foolish when, when the probability of that, the possibility of that is great. And then you find yourself more worried about that than what you're trying to do spiritually in helping people. Then, you know, it's becoming me centered instead of you centered. It's becoming me centric instead of Christ centric. And well, well, that's probably a, a concern that every Christian can probably see in their own life in some way, shape, or form. But it happens. It 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 it's it's just the reality. It's a reality. When I when we were looking at that, the the FBI doing raids on three churches, uh, two in Georgia, one in Texas, and trying to find out everything about that group. And then I'm sitting there uh, just you know again, and to kind of working through the website, trying to find some information, just chose one of their testimonies randomly to read, which was not the most exciting thing, but it gave us an idea of someone in that cult-like group, some information. And then I confused uh, a million with a hundred thousand I, and I referred a hundred thousand as a million. I can't remember which way I misread it. You don't even know how much that bothered me for days after. So that 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 if I made that mistake there well, then what's the chance of making a mistake when you're literally just like opening a book and going, okay, let's look at this now. The chances are even far greater. But once again, I should be more concerned about, well, does it get you engaged? Does it get you involved? And does it help you as a hermeneutical exercise? Yeah. I'm just have this, this is just a, uh, Just you just sit there and listen. It's what I'm laying down on a couch right now. And I'm just well, I'm just talking to you as if you're my counselor that that's that's what I'm doing. okay? but I I think it is a good spiritual lesson for all of us. What are we more worried about? What are we more concerned about? other people's spiritual benefit, health, other people's growing spiritually, God being glorified, or are we more worried about ourself? And we have a tendency that self is always elevated above everything else. And many of you know my definition of sin, right? I, I say it all the time. Sin is the exaltation of the eye. It's the exaltation of eyes, the exaltation of self, and it shows up. And, and even in the smallest ways, in the smallest way. So, I don't know. Maybe that will help someone somehow spiritually. Maybe it'll just help me. But are you ready? Here we go. So, Charles Stanley wrote a book called 30 Life Principles. That book became a Bible, the Life Principles Bible. I need to get a copy of the Life Principles Bibles. what I need to do. I can probably find a copy somewhere. I do need to get it because it would be interesting to see how he kind of weaves in the Life Principles throughout the Bible, how it's designed and how it, it it works. There's probably got to be one around somewhere. So if you find one cheap somewhere, just buy it. And if I need to, I'll get you the money back. But I would just like to see some screenshots of it. Not for you to send it to me. You keep it. Just, I want to just see pictures of, oh, here's, oh, there's life principle number 12. And that's what he, okay, how he weaves the principles into the Bible, which what we could get into a whole discussion about that. But okay. Uh, So uh, we we need to look at it at some point. But the book became a Bible. It became a study guide and all kinds of other uh, merchandise for them to sell. And I have always struggled with the book because I've always felt like the book is like a, it's like opening up a puzzle box. You see all of the pieces and after months and months and months and months, you realize there's some, this, this puzzle box is defective. These pieces don't fit together. They won't fit. They don't work. I'm never going to be able to complete the puzzle. Well, to me, 30 Life Principles by Charles Stanley is a, is a, is a broken, defective puzzle because the pieces don't fit together. He gives us the principle or principles, plural. He gives us the scriptures, but they don't, they don't actually work together in my mind. So as I've stated now, uh, every episode, I feel that he came up with the principle and he imposed it on the text. I don't believe he studied the text to arrive at the principle, which is a, which is a, The reason I keep repeating that is it's a reminder and a warning to us that we don't do the same thing with our thinking, with our ideology, with our theology, with anything that we believe. We can't arrive at a conclusion and then force it upon the scripture. We must come to a conclusion as a result of our study of the scripture. And you would think that that you would say, I know what you're saying. That's obvious. It is, but you'll be amazed at how those lines get blurred and you start doing doing things the wrong way. It, it, it happens all the time. So we, I, So what we're doing is we're taking his principle, the principles, or for that particular day, a principle, and I'm like, here it is. Here's what Charles Stanley says is the principle for today. We're looking at it just briefly, and then immediately we're throwing it to the side. And then we're going to the scripture to see what we can. And I am I am taking my time here because I am really worried that I'm not going to have anything for you today. So I'm trying to give you what I'm trying to do is throw out any kind of concept that I think will be beneficial to you today, because I don't I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm not really sure what to do with this. But here we go today. Life principle number fifteen, or principle number fifteen, is brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. Brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. Now, before we even look at the scripture, and I don't want to spend too much time on this supposed principle, but in the last, in our last study, on principle number 14 or scripture number 14, day number 14, we, we talked about the idea of waiting. Now, the concept of waiting on God, I think, is an interesting concept that could be talked about, and we should develop a theology of waiting that is based on scriptures that are actually applicable. The scripture he used was majorly problematic, all right, majorly problematic. And this one, this concept of brokenness, I think is a very biblical concept that we could try to develop a theology of brokenness, which I think would be extremely valuable. Right? So, my concern is he's got a, he brings up a very important concept of brokenness, but my fear is that the scripture he's going to go to is just going to leave us baffled, confused, and well, hopefully you'll feel what I have felt since I ever picked up these books. It the puzzle just it doesn't fit together. You may you may think that it does. I feel that it doesn't. We'll see here. But I have to ask a question. All right? If I don't if I don't accomplish anything else today, hopefully I, I, I accomplish this question. All right? Or I, or I hope I accomplish asking you this question and getting you to think about it. Here we go. Do you really believe? I mean, deep, 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 deep down that the church as a whole, at least here in the United States of America, truly believes that brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. Or let me state it this way. Do you believe that the church as a whole truly believes that brokenness is the pathway to being useful For the kingdom of God. Do you think Christians truly believe that brokenness is the the pathway? It is the way to you becoming useful in the kingdom of God. Now I think in theory we say amen. Preach that. That's great. That's awesome. Because we like the concept of brokenness. It sounds so very spiritual. It sounds so very godly. It sounds so very churchy. We like brokenness. Yes. But here's the question. What do you think produces the greatest brokenness in one's life? Now I, now I think we like the concept that before you're saved, uh, here, here you are. So you're not saved, you're, you're attending a church, you're not saved, and you've got all of your sin, all of your dirt, all of the skeletons in the closet. You're just an absolute mess. You're a train wreck, you're a dumpster fire. You're just you're you, you I mean, you you are you're in bad shape. And then you are broken over your sin, and you you scream out and cry out to God to save you, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're saved, and you are forgiven. Now, the church loves those stories. They're like, amen. That is so beautiful. A person was this and now they're saved. Oh, they were this, but now they're saved. Oh, everyone loves that story. That's, oh, everyone, that, now that's the brokenness everyone loves. Everyone loves that. You were broken over your sin. And I believe there is an element that happens in that in conversion. We are broken over our sin. We see. We see God's law, we see our sin, we realize we are condemned, we are broken and realize our only hope is not in ourselves, it's only found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everyone loves that story, it's great, it's wonderful, and no way am I minimizing it or throwing it out. But here's my question, Is is that where brokenness begins and ends? Is the concept of brokenness, it begins and ends right there just at your conversion. I will argue that's the initial brokenness. But I believe that there is more brokenness that will be required for you to grow spiritually, for you to advance spiritually. I think sometimes the greatest spiritual, I think the greatest times of spiritual growth are preceded by a period of brokenness. I think brokenness is a period that is needed in your life to 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 almost push forward a greater time, and I don't like the word season because it's so cliche, but a greater time, I know saying the same thing, but a greater season of spiritual growth. There's got to be a time of brokenness. I think brokenness is, there's the initial brokenness, but I think there must be more brokenness that happens within your Christian life. Now, this is where it becomes tricky. Everyone loves that story of the sinner Who's broken over their sin and comes to faith in Christ? But now here's the question: Now you're a Christian. You've been a Christian for two years. You've been a Christian for five years. Maybe you're a deacon. Maybe you're an elder. Maybe you're a pastor. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're and uh, you know you're doing something else in the church. You're in some kind of ministry. You're a Christian podcaster. Whatever the case may be, you're you're a husband. You're a wife. You're a mother. You're whatever the, whatever wherever your role is. What do you think, at that point, it's after your salvation, what do you think produces, what are a number of things that you think produces the greatest amount of brokenness in your life after you're saved? After you're saved. What do you think produces the greatest level of brokenness after you are saved? Now, we could name a number of things, hopefully. It would be interesting if I had a group of people what they would say. But I think, I think that some people would possibly—you know what? I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think many in the church may not write this one down. But I think that one of the things that can bring about some of the greatest level of brokenness is failure, is sin, is shame— Is when you fall on your face, when you wake up and you're in the pigsty and you're a long way from the father's house and you're like, how did I end up in the pigsty? How am I eating food, leftovers that the pigs don't even want? How did I end up here? When you wake up and you're like, wait, where am I? What did I do? How did I get here? That I think sometimes produces the greatest level of brokenness where you're humiliated, there's shame, it's just embarrassing, you don't even want to be seen, you wish you could die, you wish you could crawl in a hole somewhere and disappear, you wish you could move to another place, change your name, uh, get plastic surgery so that no one could ever find you again. Sometimes I think those situations produce the greatest level of brokenness because they go after our pride. They go after our ego. They go after, because once again, we don't like to be humiliated. We don't like to know that there are people sitting around going, did you hear? Did you hear what they did? Did you hear? Oh, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe that. Ooh, ooh, they, they, they don't deserve anything. And, and they, they they're pronouncing their judgments, their condemnation upon you. And you know that even though you can't physically hear it, you can hear all of the buzz about you. Do you think, I think that produces a, a great level of brokenness. It literally just breaks you into a million pieces. Now, here's the thing. Christians will say brokenness is the pathway to usefulness. Well, if it is, then why is it when someone is broken like that, broken into a million pieces, humiliated, shamed, embarrassed, Why is it that we, we don't then run to them going, okay, this is horrible. We're going to have to deal with it. There may be discipline. There may be, there may be this. There, you may have to step down from this for a while. But what we're going to do is we see this as an opportunity because what you have to realize right now, you're broken in a million pieces, but we're here with you and we're going to put you back together piece by piece. And because this is going to be your pathway to greater usefulness. This period of brokenness—it's horrible. It's ungodly because of, it's your sin. No one's making an excuse for it. But from brokenness can become greater usefulness. I think the church in many cases like that's it. You, you're now when when you showed up broken and you got saved, we were cool with that. But now that you've messed up and you're broken, we're not so cool with it now. Now we're like you're done. You're finished. You're 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 pathetic. Get out. You're done. How dare they ever do anything? They should never show their face again, should never speak again. They should never do anything again. Do we really believe broke, brokenness is a pathway to usefulness? Because I think in many cases, we, we almost relish in their brokenness and it becomes our the topic of conversation. It's scandalous. Oh, did you get the de- details? Instead of going, man, okay, yeah, you're broken right now. What can we do to put you back together? Because this could be your step to greater usefulness. This could be, God could use this to make you even more useful. I don't know if we really see it that way. We, we like the idea that you're broken and now you're finished. You're done. You you have, you've disqualified yourself from everything forever. In other words, there's no redemption. There's no, there's no, in a sense, there's no, there's no forgive. I, I, even though we'll say, well, you can be forgiven, but, 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 there's consequences. And here are the consequences. We came up with the list, right? I, I just don't, if, if, if brokenness is really God's requirement for usefulness, if, if brokenness is the pathway to usefulness, if it's God's requirement, then why would we not then help that say, okay, God has broken you or you've broken yourself, but God is going to use this brokenness because this is how he gets you to maximum usefulness. I don't think we necessarily truly believe that, because if we did, we would see people who are broken and fallen and have made horrible mistakes. We would see them as the, the greatest candidates for maximum usefulness instead of seeing them as candidates for immediate disqualification from ever speaking or doing anything again. Now I'm not saying that we ignore it. I'm saying that maybe it could be utilized. You, you, I'll just leave that there. Now, are you ready? All right, here we go. We'll set. We'll set aside his principle that brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. I think we could have we could have a long conversation about that principle. Right? We could have a and just, just so that you know, that's another thing I do. No matter how bad a book may be or whether I agree or disagree even when I listen to a sermon I always try to find that which I can use for well to to talk and discuss and have conversations about so even though I may disagree with a lot of things in this book that principle right there I think is a great conversation starter I mean man we could we could tear that apart all day but brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness I just don't know if we truly believe that I think it I think it preaches good but I don't know because I've seen I've I've seen too many situations where the people don't come running to the broken to go, hey, 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 man, it's bad right now, but we're right here with you. Now we're going to make it through it. Yes, there's going to be some consequences. Yes, you may not be able to, you're going to have to step down. And yes, you're going to have to do this and this and this and this and this. But trust me, when this is all done, this is, this God is going to use this to bring out maximum usefulness in you. And I'm here to put the pieces back together with you. I'm here to stand right there by you. No, 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 no. Man, people don't stand by you. Man, they talk about you, and they walk away from you, all right? Where are the people who would walk back and and see the prodigal son laying in the pigsty going, loser, 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 probably never saved, ungodly, man, pathetic. But maybe one person would go, man, that person's broken. Man, that that could be the first step to being used in a great way. I'm going to climb climb over the fence, get in the pigsty with them, and I'm going to say, "Hey, I'm right here with you." Okay, we, we I need you need to see that you're in sin. And we're going to climb over this fence together, and I'm going to walk back to the Father's house house with you, because when you get there, you're going to be forgiven, and you're going to be cleaned up, and you're going to be on the first step to being used in a great way. I, I don't, I just don't see a lot of people who who do that for you. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's my own. You, 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 yeah, whatever. All right, here we go. Here we go. Brokenness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. And the passage that Charles Stanley says he got this principle from is Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19. Here we go. I'm going to read it from a couple of Bibles here. Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 19. I'm just already worried. I'm just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, here we go. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19. Jeremiah 15, 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you return, I will take you back. You will stand in my presence. And if you speak noble words, rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman It is they who must return to you. You must not return to them. Okay. Okay. Wow. All right. You see where where I have a problem with why this book sometimes just leaves me completely perplexed? Where are we going here? Jeremiah 15, 19, therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you return, I will take you back. You will stand in my presence. And if you speak noble words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. It is they who must return to you. You must not return to them. Now, there's a million things we got to figure out here. We, We, oh man, okay. Where do we even begin? Where do we even begin? Well, let's get a little information here, right? I'm just gonna, a little background to try to get a somewhat, I, I'm, I, there's a lot about this verse that I'm not even, and remember, that's the whole thing about doing this. I, I'm gonna sit here and struggle with this, but here we go. There's some basic background. Jeremiah was a prophet in Judah, 627 BC, 586 BC. He served after Manasseh's reign, which was uh, 685 B.C. to 630 B.C. But the ongoing corruption of the king's idolatry was felt throughout Judah for many years. God's punishment for Judah was the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah's sad duty was to warn the people of the judgment that was coming. All right, so Jeremiah is the prophet in Judah, 627 to 586. He served after Manasseh's reign, which was 685 to 630, but because of the ongoing corruption of the king's idolatry was felt throughout Judah for many years, God's punishment for Judah was the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah's sad duty was to warn the people of the judgment that was coming. Hey, idolatry, you've, you've fallen, you've messed up, you're ungodly. All right. But judgment is coming, but it's going to be for 70 years. We know the 70 year Babylonian captivity, and then you're going to be returned. We kind of talked a little bit about this uh, yesterday in, in the concept of waiting and, we, and, and how that possibly was connected to uh, J- Judah and the Babylonian captivity, waiting for them to be returned. We talked a little bit about this. All right. So there's at least some basic background. So when I see this, Jeremiah 15, 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you return, I will take you back. Now, who, who did who is he speaking of here? All right. If you go back to Jeremiah, let's go back to Jeremiah 15. Let's start in verse 15. You know, Lord... Remember me and take note of me, avenge me against my pros, persecutors, In your patience don't take me away. Know that I suffered disgrace for your honor. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart, for I bear your name. Lord God of armies, I never sat with the band of revelers, um, and I did not celebrate with them, because your hand was on me, I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation, Why was my pain becoming unending, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? You truly have become like a mirage to me, water that is not reliable. Now, this seems to be Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 15, starting in 15 to 18. He seems to be praying there, right? And he seems to be, well, there seems to be having some struggle. Let's do this. I'm going to go to a different translation. Jeremiah 15. I mean Ezekiel going that makes absolutely no sense. Okay, Jeremiah 15. Here we go. We're going to work on this, see if we can put this together. All right, Jeremiah chapter 15. All right, and then uh I'm just going to go to uh, I'm going to back up all the way to uh, verse I'm going to go uh well, I, I could. I'm just going to go back to verse 10. I'm going to go back to verse 10 here, Jeremiah 15:10. Maybe, maybe we have to go all the way back to verse one. I don't want to. The goal here was not to do to turn this into a verse by verse exposition of these sections of Scripture, because well, then this would not. I can't do this in just one episode. But I'm going to do my best to try to provide us as much context to see what in the world we do with this verse. So I'm just trying to find some context so that we get some understanding, so we know what to do with verse, therefore, thus saith the Lord, if thou return, we going to know who is God speaking to? Is he speaking to Jeremiah? Is this a call for Jeremiah to repent? Or is this a call for Judah to repent? Like wh- what is happening here? So let's go back to verse 10, Jeremiah 15, verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast bore me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth, I have neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. The Lord said, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Verily I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. Shall iron break the northern iron and the steel? Thy substance and thy treasures will I give to the spoil without price, and that for all thy sins, even in all thy borders." And I will make thee to pass with thine enemies into a land which thou knowest not, for a fire is kindled, my anger which shall burn upon you. There seems to be a little bit of discussion here about, well, what, all the things that are going to happen. And one of the things is obviously judgment is coming. Then verse 15, Jeremiah 15, 15 O Lord, thou knowest, remember me. This seems to be Jeremiah, this is the way I'm understanding it, crying out to God. In the face of all of this judgment and all of the difficulties, his face, people probably his message of coming judgment wasn't very popular. Seems to be some of the issues here. Uh, Jeremiah 15, 15, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me, and revenge me of my persecutors. Take away not away and thy long suffering. No, for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. So he seems to be saying, God, help st- help me out here. St- everyone hates me. Everyone's cursing me. I'm being persecuted. Do something for me, right? Because I, I'm not with them. Help me out here. It seems to be what he is saying. Thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand for thou hast filled me with indignation. Then look at this verse, verse 18. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Will thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fell? This seems to be Jeremiah dealing with some kind of like frustration and like almost like a a, a spiritual lament, which we've done a series on. He's, he's almost crying out, God he he's frustrated he seems to be like god where are you are you going to just not do what you said have you have you left me are you not listening to me it seems like he there's a little bit of pain there then that flows right into verse 19 therefore thus saith the lord if thou return then i will bring thee again Once again, this is the, these chapters that require, why would he grab this verse so far out of its context? I do not know. We we have to spend a little time here uh, and see if we can figure anything out. Um, And I'm looking here to see in the study guide, they don't, all right. um, Okay, so this is how they have it set up. And I'll see if this makes any sense. Jeremiah 15, 4 through 6, seems to be God's judgment upon Judah. And I will cause them to be removed unto all kingdoms of earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. Uh, Then verse 5, for who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem, or who shall bemoan thee, or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Thou hast forsaken me, saith the Lord, thou art gone backwards, therefore will I stretch out my hand against thee and destroy thee. I am weary with repenting. All right, so verses four through six clearly is God's judgment upon Judah because of the idolatry and everything that flowed from Manasseh's reign and all of his corruption. Okay. Okay. And then ultimately they're going to go into Babylonian captivity. So, so that seems clear. God, that versus Jeremiah 15, four through six gives us God's judgment. That seems clear. All right. Now that's five through six. Now, and seven, I will, I, and I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land. I will be bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they return not from their ways. Their widows are increased to me above the sand of the seas. I have brought upon them against the mother of the young man, a spoiler at noonday. I've caused him to fall upon it suddenly and terrors upon the city. She that hath borne seven languish, she hath uh, given up the ghost. Her son has gone down while well, it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded and the residue of them will I deliver to the sword before the enemy saith the Lord. All of that is God's judgment upon Judah. So I think it goes. I think you could say it goes all the way down to verse nine. Then, so that's God's judgment upon Judah. Clearly, I'm going to say four to nine. Four to nine is God's judgment upon Judah. Four through nine. All right? I'm, tr- I'm trying to. I'm trying to build in real time. I'm trying to back up. What I'm trying to demonstrate here is when you when you are given a devotional, or even if just a pastor just preaches from a sermon, or a preach a sermon just on a verse. Sometimes I'm not saying right there during the sermon, you listen to the sermon and be respectful. But when you when it's over, then you need to stop and go. Okay, I'm going to go home and look at this, and then you start just backing up verse by verse until you start being able to figure out kind of a some kind of an outline of what's going on. So. That's what we've been doing. I know it's taking a little while, but remember, this is happening in real time, So, and I'm doing that on purpose, okay? So here we go. So, verse 19 is supposedly the verse that Charles Stanley thinks fits his principle. We're a little baffled by exactly who, what, where, what, what exactly is going on. We have a little background, knowing that Jeremiah is a prophet in Judah from 627 BC to 586 BC. He served after Manasseh's reign, 685 to 630. but the the ongoing corruption of the king's idolatry was felt throughout Judah for many years, and God's punishment for Judah was the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah's duty was to warn the people of the judgment that was coming. We we know that's the kind of historical background. We've gotten that. All right, now, we go back to Jeremiah 15, starting in verse 4, and verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 are horrible words of the judgment that God is going to bring upon Judah, right? Now, What happens in verse 10? Woe is me. The woe is me there has to be, I don't think that's God speaking. Woe is me, my mother that thou hast born a a man of strife. No, that doesn't make any sense. This has to be Jeremiah. So in verse 10, Jeremiah seems to be putting forth his emotions, his feelings. Woe is me. My mother, that house that that hast borne me a man of strife, a man of contention to the whole earth, I have neither lent on usury nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. Right? This seems to be Jeremiah expressing his frustration as his pain in verse 10. All right, we got to hurry. We're going to run out of time trying to do this. But th- this takes a, a while to try to figure this out. Verse 11, the Lord said, verily, uh, it shall be well with thee. So now he reminds himself of, of some of God's promises and what God is going to do. All right. That seems to happen in verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. And I will make thee to the pass. This all seems to be reminding himself of the things God promised. So he he expresses his frustration, his pain, his emotions and verse 10. He reminds himself of God's promise in verse 11, 12, and 13, and 14. Then in 15, he says, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me. Now he's petition- he, he expresses his pain, he remembers God's promises, and then he expresses or he petitions God to intercede on his behalf to do something for him. Remember me and visit me and revenge me of of my persecutors. Take me not away in in, in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. So then he's like, Lord, hey, you got to help me out here. I need you to step in. Do something to these people who are persecuting me. Everyone hates me. Do something. But then he says, your words, speaking of to God, Jeremiah speaking of God's words, I did find them. I ate them, and the word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So he he is stating, look, even though this situation has been bad, I have rejoiced. I have I have found joy in your word. Okay, well, I'm still I, I, some of these we could preach a sermon on, but okay. So now that gets us down to verse seventeen. I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thine hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Now I'm going to look at that, verse seventeen. I'm going to look at it right here. Uh, I never sat with the band of revellers, and I did not celebrate with them because your your hand was on me. I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. Now, I think, I, I'm assuming, I'm going to read that, I'm going to read that verse in a number of translations, because this is, now, this gets us really critical to try to get to, get to the key verse, right? This gets us really close to the key verse, and so we've got to definitely know exactly what's going on here. we got to know exactly what's going on here, All right? Uh Yes, okay, this, the New Living Translation, I think I think will help, will help us here. I never joined the people in their merry feast. I sat alone because your hand was on me. I was filled with indignation at their sins. Lord, I didn't participate with them. I didn't sit with them because you gave me a hatred for their sin. You gave me an, indig- an indignation that I'm like, I don't wanna be a part of that. You did that for me, all right? Now, but then look what happens in the next verse why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable which, which refuseth to be healed will thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as a waters that fail so then he, he he really cries out to god why is my pain perpetual i'm going to go to the uh, i'm going to read this in a number of translations why then does my suffering continue why is my wound so incurable? Your help seems as uncertain as a seasonal brook, like a spring that has gone dry. So Jeremiah is very upset here, right? Judgment's coming on Judah. You've made, you, you said judgment was coming, but you've seemed to make some promises. And, 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 I, and I, you've given me an indignation against their sin. I've not gone along with their sin, but I'm still suffering, Lord. I'm still suffering. Why am I suffering? Why is my wound incurable? You've placed me in this situation, and you're not providing any relief or any cure. So then he, he literally says this to God. Your help seems as uncertain as a seasonal brook, like a spring that has gone dry. Another translation. You, he's speaking to God. You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. Or another translation, God, you have become to me a mirage, water that is not there. Wow. Wow. Say that in your, your next small group meeting. So how are you doing this week? You know how I'm doing this week? Here's how I'm doing. I'm mad. I'm suffering. You know what God is like to me? You know what, God, he's a mirage. He looks like he's there, but there's nothing actually there. He's not there to help me. He's not there to fix my suffering. He's not there to do anything. And everybody in the small group would be like, what has happened to you? But here's Jeremiah. Right? I mean, uh, uh, are you, do you, you, I'm, 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 I'm asking this, yeah, what I'm doing is I'm stumbling over my words. I'm asking this as if there's people sitting here in front of me. Hey, guys, so are you still with me? Do you agree? Do you agree? Because somebody's like, no, I don't think that's who's talking, but I think we've done a pretty good job. God gives, in verse 4 through 9, is God saying, here's how I'm going to judge Judah. Verse 10, Jeremiah starts uh, expressing his pain and, and confusion and grief. He remembers what God is going to do. He does say that he has taken God's word and ate them and found joy. Um, but he, he, he. I mean, by the time you get to verse eighteen, he is upset. He is very upset. I mean, when you start saying God, you're basically a mirage to me. You're a mirage. I, I, I know. Oh, there, there's God. But when I get there, there, there's no water. There's no relief. There's no relief. There's no relief. And I don't know where you live. I know here in Texas, when it gets, well, like it does in the summer, it's 110 degrees. You can just look out there and you can see, it looks like water. You've probably seen it on a highway. It looks like water out there. It looks like water on the road. And you get there and there's no water. There's no water. You're 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 suffering. When you're suffering, it's like being thirsty. You need relief. You need that relief relief. So much, and then you get there, and there's there's no it's just Texas sand. It's just dirt. Well, sometimes God, it's like God, where you're you're just a mirage. I, I, where are you? That that that's now. Why he just grabs something in verse 19 here? I I don't know. But then we go to verse 19. I'm going to argue. And if you disagree, that's okay. Verse 19 has to be God's word to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the one speaking in the in the verses previous, right directly before this. So I'm going to read this in a number of translations. Jeremiah 15, 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter if you utter worthy not worthless words you will be my spokesman let this people turn to you but you must not turn to them now we start getting a little bit of clarification it was it's confusing at first when you just open a bible and jump to verse 19 you're like what is happening but this is god calling jeremiah to repent At first, you would think, oh, no, no, this is to Judah, right? This is to Judah, because I know the historical background, right? I know Judah is going into Babylonia. Okay, he's telling them to return. But no, 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 in this context, when we, when we, when we set aside maybe our initial thoughts, and that's why I threw out my initial thoughts, when we set, you can't, you can't base your interpretation off your, off your initial thought. No matter what you think, you've got to set it aside and go look at the text. When we look at the text, this is God's word to Jeremiah, Jeremiah has reached a, pers- a, a, a a level of brokenness. Yeah. Well, should we use that? See, now that I'm being, please note what's happening there. Charles Stanley gave me a principle that he's imposed on the text. So I got to be very careful not to impose the concept of brokenness upon the text. I got to be very careful. If it's warranted yet, in other words, if the concept of brokenness arises from the text, great, but I should not impose it upon the text because I've been preconditioned by reading what someone has said about the text. That's always dangerous to do. It's always dangerous to do. But let, let's see how other translations handle this, all right? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words. Now, that's a that's a sharp rebuke. That's almost seemingly to indicate that what Jeremiah has just been saying in the previous verses, you're uttering worthless words. If you want to stop with your worthless words, then okay. That that's that's a harsh rebuke. New Living Translation uh this is how the Lord this is how the Lord responds. If you return to me, I will re- restore you so you can continue to serve me. If you speak good words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. Stop letting these people stop, stop letting these people's actions against you, their words, their attitude. Stop letting them influence you. You influence them. Wow, that that translation really kind of adds a, a layer to this. It adds a layer to this. Who are you being, when, when the people who causes you to, you get, think about this. Think of the people who hurt you, who make you feel bitter, make you feel angry, make you want vengeance, that, that the people who just irritate you, whatever the key, think about it. They're, they're, they're influencing you more than you're influencing them. Their actions are influencing you. You're not influencing them. You're allowing them to get inside of your brain, your heart. You're allowing them inside of you. Who are you? Are you more influenced by people or are you the one influencing them? Now, you could argue that that's not an accurate, good translation. You could argue that it's better to just say, hey, you you let the people turn to you. You don't return to them. All right? So you could argue, hey, here's what you do. Hey, you're all worried about the people. You don't go back to them. You let them come back to you. You could argue that that this influence concept may not be actually there. We, we could have to break down the Hebrew, but just so that you see that. Uh, the ESV oh man we're running out of time because I wanted these to be shorter but this one has taken a while therefore thus saith the Lord if you return I will restore you and you shall stand before me if you utter what a, what is precious and not what is worthless you shall be as my mouth they shall turn to you but you shall not return to them now let's stop right here I think we, we think this is clearly God calling Jeremiah to repent. This is calling Jeremiah to repent. So I think instead of imposing brokenness on the text, there, I think there's some broken brokenness ideas that we could take from here. I, I, I'm now being more... What's, what's get, getting my attention here is restoration. Note how uh, a couple most of these English translations handle this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you. New Living Translation. If you return to me, I will restore you. ESV. If you return, I will restore you. Brian Study Bible. If you return, I will restore you. I will restore you. I will restore you back to a position of usefulness. I will restore you. Do Christians truly believe in restoration? Do we be- truly believe that someone can do something really bad? They. I'm not saying that you immediately say, okay, you're forgiven. You're good to go. I'm not saying that. I'm saying sometimes there has to be steps that have to be taken. Do we truly believe in restoration in any way, shape, or form? Can a person be restored? Now, I, look, I don't expect people in the world to say you can be restored. I don't expect that. I don't believe in restoration in many cases. I mean, you're like, you are you did this, you're canceled, you're done, the end. Okay, move on. Let's find the next person who makes a mistake. You're canceled, you're done, move on. But I, I think in some cases, the church created cancel culture way before the, cult, before the culture embraced uh, cancel culture. I think the cancel culture was learned by, I think the, the culture learned cancel culture from Christians. We see more wanting to cancel someone and silence someone and remove someone more than we want to restore someone. Now, yes, I am not saying that if they commit a crime uh, that you just turn your back. No, obviously uh, that has to be handed to the courts, that the person has to face whatever the legal ramifications and then pay for that particular crime whatever it may be. I'm not saying that. But even in that, can they not still be restored to some place spiritually? Do we still not even when they're after they're done paying for their crime, can they not be restored and is there any hope of restoration? Do you see more brokenness in this passage or do you see restoration in this passage? Jeremiah has reached a point where he's like, God, you're nothing more than a mirage to me. Hey, that's how that's how frustrated he has become. the The situation has gotten so bad that Jeremiah seems to have basically like, God, where are you? You're like a mirage. You're you're. I don't know if I can trust you anymore. And God steps in and go, Whoa, 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 whoa. If you repent, and and I will restore you, you may serve me. If you'll stop saying these utterly useless words, these words that are not worthy and start saying worthy words, then you will be my spokesman. Like, you are my spokesman. You'll stop being my spokesman until you repent. Once you repent, you get to be my spokesman again. But you've reached a very bad place. Now. Does it require someone to reach that place so that they can reach maximum usefulness? The, Charles Stanley is almost saying, hey, see, if you'll get to the place where you no longer trust in God and you're just like, you, re, you reach that place where you have to be rebuked by God, that that's where max, maximum usefulness arises from. Can we reach maximum usefulness without having to reach the point where we have to be rebuked by God and he says, you have to repent? and stop saying useless and worth and uh useless and unworthy words do we have to reach that point do, do we have to reach the point that god you're i think you're a liar do you have to reach that point before you can reach maximum usefulness i'm going to write a principle down I know we're going to have to stop. Fifty-eight minutes. I really do apologize, because I really wanted these to be shorter, but there's just this just there's just no way here. All right, we're going to go um, going to go principle number twenty-nine if you've been following along, or number one for today. God offers restoration. For the repentant. God offers restoration for the repentant. That, that to me is what jumps out at me. He's, he's offering Jeremiah complete restoration back to being a spokesman. You've reached this point, and the spokesman with your words. You're now you've gone from saying the right words to utterly useless and, and unworthy words. You've reached the point where you're basically calling me a liar. If you will repent, I will restore you. He doesn't say if you repent, I will throw you out. I will be done with you. I will restore you. We need to remember that when we fall, God offers, hey, the people around you may not offer restoration. They may not. The people around you may brand you with the scarlet letter, and that's what you will forever be known for. But God, but God will restore. God will restore. God, in a sense, will remove the scarlet letter and say, or or he'll place his mark on you, redeemed Forgiven, restored, my servant, my spokesman. And we should celebrate that. The world may not understand it. But in some ways, when the world doesn't understand it, going, no, no, you want, you may think it's foolish. You may think it's dumb. But guess what we offer you? The gospel that, listen, the gospel that redeems and restores is the gospel that saves for your failure, for your sin, for your guilt, the gospel can save and remove that sin as far as the East is from the West. And the same gospel that will redeem the worst sinner to salvation is the same gospel that forgives and restores the fallen saint. The gospel that redeems the lost sinner is the gospel that restores the fallen saint. I think we may wanna write that down. The gospel that redeems the sinner is the same gospel that restores the fallen saint. The gospel that redeems the sinner is the same gospel that restores the fallen saint. I have to stop. Newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Now, if you think I messed up somewhere in my trying to work through Jeremiah 15, if you think there was something wrong with my outlining, my explaining who was speaking to whom and what was happening, if you think in any way that I was wrong, Please let me know, but please don't just say I'm wrong. I need you to explain textually where you think I messed up. There's always the potential, uh, doing something like this, that there's a danger. If I, Trust me, if I figure out that I made a mistake, I will turn this microphone back on and tell you and acknowledge said mistake. All right? Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Now, that's it. That concludes Day 15. That concludes day 15 of our 30 days, or 30 scriptures in 30 days. And hopefully, you have found something in this that was beneficial. Any feedback on this episode will be greatly appreciated. So please email me, newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. God bless.